0: Shemot covers Exodus chapter one through chapter five and uh, picks up a little bit beginning of chapter six, which is kind of the punchline to jump into the next section, Vayero, which is going to start heading off into the big confrontation there between heaven and uh, one of the superpowers of that particular time period, Mitzrayim, Egypt. And we also picked up uh, the passage there in uh, Isaiah chapter 27, 28, with a very kind of key passage, uh, (laughs) which has been, you could say, somewhat misinterpreted over time as being a uh, (laughs) formula for Bible study, uh, line upon line, here a little, there a little, which actually it's nothing of the sort in its original context. It's... uh, Basically, where um, you get from a famous sitcom, yada, 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 uh, that actually comes from this particular passage, because that's the attitude that's expressed with line upon line, here a little, there a little, um, because, yes, yeah, because basically in, in Hebrew, it comes, uh, comes across as, you know, sav la sav, kav la kav, you know, basically blah, 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 and that's what you see the people of God were treating the words of the Lord as. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, we know. So, and um, Jeremiah chapter 1, and uh, covered a particular also area of concern where the people of God were engaging with the Lord on this. And then we also picked up the sermon there from the deacon. So, Anybody who's been in the role of a deacon, uh, could you preach a sermon like this? Well, I guess with the inspiration of the Spirit of God, um, may it be so. But yeah, <laughs> that is uh, quite the sermon that the um, deacon Stefan pulls in on uh, Acts chapter 7. And this is a particular little segment of that, reflecting upon the account of Moshe and It's interesting as to what he's focusing on and how he's applying this back to the people who have him on trial and will shortly execute him, including the Apostle Paul, or soon-to-be Apostle Paul. (laughs) And uh, then we also took a look at the short little segment from uh, Hebrews, which from chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, the so-called Hall of Faith, or the chapter of faith is it talked about where Moshe was this great man of faith you know like the others that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 looking over the horizon they were shown a vision over the horizon to what was coming and that was they're only seen over the horizon or seen le alam vaed because they are given this special vision from the Lord and they trusted what the Lord was showing them over the horizon so with all that, uh, we're going to take a look at some of the particular signposts that we have of this particular passage of Shemotz, and looking actually from back from a bit at the entire book that we're diving into now with this particular section. So the book of Shemotz or Exodus is really, if you were to think about it, kind of think about all the general themes, all the things you're going to see as we go through this particular book, you could really boil it down to this is the reconciliation. We talked a lot about reconciliation during the account of Yosef and Joseph there ex, uh, from Genesis 37 through chapter 50. So Genesis 37 through 50 was all about Joseph reconciling with his brothers and the whole family of Yaakov reconciling with their long, not lost, but rejected, thrown away, sold off into slavery brother. So thus, sounds familiar, (laughs) because that's where we meet Israel in slavery. It's one of the first things we see here as Shemot is opening up Israel in slavery. And so thus, you see, you have the reconciliation of Israel back to God and headed back to the land again. So thus, you see, a key part of this reconciliation that comes out of this is that the Lord remembers the promises. The promises, And you hear this phrase again and again and again. The God of Abraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov, comes up again and again and again. And in fact, if you see in that key passage where we first really encounter this formal introduction of the name, otherwise known as the by the 50 cent word from theology called the Tetragrammaton, the four character name, you know, in English, you know, comes as Y. W, you know you will see it various ways that people will spell it but uh transliterated as um y-h-w-h something like that but one of the things that you see really the core of it is the memorial name is the god of avraham the god of yitzhak the god of yaakov and you might recall from the gospels that. Messiah Yeshua brings this up in a very specific context. Well, so yes, that, that's a good one. Before Abraham was, "I am." Before Ab- Abraham was, "I am," that makes as little sense in English as it does in Greek to say, "In the past, present tense." So it was as jarring to us in English. I don't know if it, they, do they do that in Spanish as well, in Spanish translations? Do they have that jarring out of sense grammar? Do they pull that out? Good. Because it should be jarring. That's it's jarring in Greek. It's jarring in English. To have that very purposely. Uh, yes, uh, Lorella, do you have a, a comment or a question over here? Uh, go ahead. Oh, sign language. They also bring that across in sign language as well. Oh, you have to sign it. Oh, oldest to the newest. Mm. Mm. Ah, I see. Okay. All right. Well, one of the things that we, as uh, Anne and Lurilla, put forward, is this is a jarring sense. And it comes across with the memorial name and something that Yeshua brings across is that he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And also the apostle Peter brings this out as well in his sermon on Shavuot or Pentecost, not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And this is a very important promise because that promise that's made to Abraham, reiterated again to Yitzhak, reiterated again to Yaakov, reiterated again. We just, when we finished out the book of Genesis, chapter 50 and 49, reiterated again to the sons. So here are the sons of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. That promise gets then kicked down to the next level the next generations and the generation after that so thus when we get into this book of Exodus these folk are sitting in bondage but did that promise end just because it was a promise to some other generation no it is a promise that continues on from one generation to the next and you also see that it's the mention of of he hears the cries, he hears the cries of the lamentations that they are in bondage, that the nation is in bondage, and that the Lord ultimately responds. And here's a, a passage that, you know, speaking of the Apostle Peter from his second letter. So, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. That with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You know, Now, people have used this as a formula for Bible prophecy, but just like tzav la, tzav, kav, la kav, it's important not to miss the point of the passage. The punchline of this particular passage is, is about what if a promise is made thousands of years ago to the lord it's as if it was yesterday or today it's not something that's easily forgotten it's like okay it went in the past uh yes uh, go go ahead sean sorry i don't know if this is a
1: side off question but i was just wondering where in the torah there's a talk about that kind of time frame with
0: god a thousand uh, years, a thousand one years like one day yeah where's that in the um, form i'm trying to remember now there is a there's a passage that is very similar to that that you get in uh try to remember if it was um similar in with daniel but also in the psalms but uh it's a very uh similar passage to that but i'll have to have to have to look that up more specifically yes All right, any other comments or questions on that before we move forward? All right. Now, one of the other things that we see with the reconciliation of Israel to God is that the Messiah is reconciling the world to heaven. So thus, you might have... um, Yes, uh, Tammy has her hand up with a comment or a question. Look at Psalm
1: 90, verse 4.
0: Ah, yes. Or a
1: thousand years in your sight, or like yesterday, when it passes yes. by, or as a watch in the night.
0: Yes. Psalm 90, verse 4. So, you have these accounts there where you have to, <laughs> as the apostle and as the psalmist are saying, to look over the horizon, so to speak, of where you're at just like we've talked about with the first chapter of the letter that James or the Apostle Yaakov, as he writes, that when you face these trials, you look for wisdom to endure through them. Because what? Your maturity out the other end is what is important. And Israel's maturity that It is birthed out of this slavery, this bondage, a more complete, a more complete group of people that go back into the land to form this anchor for the entire world. And by extension from that, talking about the people of God, that one of the lessons that we're going to get from this passage, uh, as as we were ending with the account of Yosef there in Genesis 37-50, through 50, you see Israel descending down into Mitzrayim, into slavery. Then Shemot, or Exodus, is the ascent out of slavery into freedom. And so with this, we see that we, as those who are grafted in, to the commonwealth, become part of the commonwealth of Israel, a part of this, as the Apostle Paul puts it, the olive tree that God planted, or as it's given through the um, prophets, Yeshayahu, Isaiah, about the vineyard that the Lord planted, the vine that the Lord planted. We become grafted into this. So as part of this, Tree or vine that the Lord has planted, with the root of which is the Messiah, the Christ, we then, whether we are redeemed like Israel or adopted like you see, um, we'll be getting to some of that here later. That whether we are adopted or redeemed, we become the ambassadors of heaven into the entire world for doing what? To reconcile the world it's not a part of a club where you get to learn the secret handshakes and then you have the nice meetings and you uh have a big rah 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 and then you go home it's a part of a body for a purpose to bring the world back from disaster it has been descending in disaster ever since the beginning when we started Genesis, we were talking about the tree of life, the, the road to life, the path to life, and the tree of knowledge of good and bad, the road to death, the road to disaster. Those two roads are out there all the time. You see that reflected on when we get through to Deuteronomy. The end of Deuteronomy, it's like I said before you, life and death, choose life. That's the same choices that are given to the world all the time so we are a part of heaven's reconciliation pulling the world back from the brink this road to death so with this then another little nugget that we get out of this particular passage of exodus 1 through 5 and first part of chapter 6 is that (laughs) sadly you know eh, only the good die young yes um the people who do good things often get forgotten by people that are, um, you could say, not uh, really wanting to keep the knowledge of God in their thoughts, something that we're going through in the Roman study right now, in Romans chapter 1. If you do not want to keep the knowledge of God in your mind, the problem then comes is that you have a problem keeping really a cohesion in the whole rest of the world going down the right path. My people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Yes, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Now the the thing is and that's that's a very interesting uh, thing you bring up there because one of the key things that we will see as we keep moving along through Exodus is it's not enough to know something do you actually accept it you remember the you know the knowledge wisdom understanding that whole thing is to have information coming into your brain. Okay, great. Wisdom, you know what to do with it. Okay, great. But understanding, do you know why things are the way they are? Why things are happening? You you see that when you go through when you go through school with with mathematics. You know, they've seen a disaster that's come along in education in the recent decades when they tried to flip things around a little bit where you learn the basic mechanics of things, you know, your addition tables, your multiplication tables, your division tables. You get that down, dot, 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 dot. So you can calculate really as fast as, as a human can possibly do. So you do things so that you don't have to think about it. Now, if you then are able to do those basics, 2 plus 2, 2 plus 3, whatever. 2 times 3, 2 times 4. If you were able to get those things down where you don't have to keep thinking about it and get out your fingers and your toes and, and count everything all the time to do these basic equations, then you can start doing something with those things. You can go into engineering and construction, doing all kinds of things, plumbing, all sorts of things where people are making calculations all the time. All the time. You can take that knowledge, put it into practice wisely. Then you go further onto that. Well, oh, why are these numbers? Why are these things the way they are? You know, I was, I was quite shocked when I was going through uh, <laughs> in, in when we got into uh, calculus I decided to beat myself uh so i took calculus even though it wasn't really required for whatever major i was going into i took it and one of the interesting things that they do with calculus at least the course i was going through is you went and derived some basic equations that you have you know like do you know why um circumference is the equation that it's at Do you know why a radius equation is the way it's at? Do you know why the volume of a sphere is, you know, four thirds was a pi cubed? Pi r cubed. That's what it is. Yes. Do you know why it's like that? Pages of calculus goes into that. It's unbelievable. We, and we get down to some simple thing that you learn as you go through school to just do it cold. You memorize it. well, the understanding is is you're just like, you're peering under the hood and s- like a, under a car and start pulling all the, the plugs and everything out of it. This should start sounding familiar. So when as we go through and we start getting into the instructions of God, you have the basic things that you just learn. The Ten Commandments, the two greatest commandments. Yeah, you have the, the Ten Commandments, you have the two uh, greatest commandments that come through. Well, then from that, you have the other things that come out of those commandments so that you can actually do something with it in the world. This should start sounding familiar. Remember what the Apostle Paul talks about. The law is a tutor. So that when you learn it, you're no longer in need of a tutor anymore. Well, what anybody who's in engineering says, well, I'm glad I finally got out of grade school. Now I get to forget all of my addition tables, all of my multiplication tables, all my division tables, just throw them all out the window. No, that's, that's crazy. you would be crazy talk if you were to talk to an engineer and say that. So thus, how much more than, here's a great uh, call of a Homer argument. If we can do that with basic things like, arithmetic and engineering then how much more then are the basic instructions of god and then the understanding that comes in from that where you and heaven are on the same page and that is revealed by the spirit of god moving through you so those basics are now a part of you anymore i mean You think of the basic skills that you have, the people who become journeymen or whatever, are they like flipping through the book all the time to look up the stuff? No, that's a part of what they get from their years of putting the stuff into practice. They don't have to keep looking at it anymore. That's what Paul's talking about. It is, the law is there as a tutor. So thus, we're going to see as we go through the book of Shemot. We are going to see, basically, everybody's having to go back through remedial Torah education and the things of God. They go to the mountain. And as we see in this, this progression, that when you are delivered out of slavery, you are taken to the mountain to meet the one who's leading you on the way. And then from there, then you learn the laws, the instructions, the ordinances put the things into practice but you got to be delivered first you know you think of uh you think of the, the poor crude analogy of someone there beside the road do you come by and just toss a, a chilton's manual out the window and say good luck no you tow them or whatever you get them going because they're like i don't know what to do You get a Chilton's book dropped in your lap. You don't have the tools. You have no idea what to do with it. So you're stuck. You need to be saved first. The tow, the skilled person to come along to help you out. Then it's like, okay, you know, it's kind of a poor analogy today because with a car, still with the Chilton's, you might might as well burn it because about as useful as it's going to be without like uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars or thousands in in diagnostic and computer equipment that goes along with the cars today but (laughs) yeah you can't even deal with your own mechanics anymore but the things it's a very poor analogy but to the things of god it is you have to be saved first from your disaster then it's like okay now let's go on to the basic maintenance and keeping the thing going, and this should start sounding familiar. The things, the basic practices of God, similar to the parables that Yeshua told. You know, the guy who had the, had the his house possessed, so he threw it out, swept the house clean, but it was empty. He didn't fill it back in with something. He didn't go through the remedial stuff. He did the, you could say, the disaster cleanup, but didn't go through the remedial stuff to make it a place that doesn't get into a disaster yet again. So that's one of the things as we go through this particular section and as we go through into Shemot, that we see that the good deeds that are done, the good deeds of Yosef, he did what? to? Mitzrayim to Egypt. He was like the tow truck man coming by to Egypt. And he gave him a long tow because Egypt was going to be into a disaster. But instead of a disaster, he made Egypt into a savior of that world in that particular time period where people were coming to buy grain. From Mitzrayim. so the interesting thing is is that he also Yosef set up what we see in chapter one of of uh, Exodus, because what we're seeing here is this Pharaoh that did not know Joseph benefited from what Yosef set up because remember we were talking about how Yosef consolidated power in Mitzrayim under the Pharaoh and how that's great if you have a benevolent dictator. Well, this is the not benevolent dictator who came in after. He's benefiting from what Yosef did, but not giving any credit whatsoever to not only Yosef, but the one who gave Yosef the wisdom, the insight, the understanding. The previous Pharaoh that knew Yosef knew the one behind Yosef trusted Yosef and by extension trusted the one leading Yosef's master, the Lord of heaven and earth, trusted him. This next one that came in, he was benefiting from it, had no gratitude whatsoever, no gratitude to the blessings that came down to him. He just took it and said, thank you very much. So thus we see that this Pharaoh that didn't know Yosef and the Lord ultimately brought a curse. Instead of the blessing that came to the Pharaoh that did know Yosef, and through extension to Mitzrayim, and then through extension to the Egyptian empire, this Pharaoh brought the curse down upon his nation brought his nation down because he would not submit to the God of Yosef, the God of Yaakov, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Avraham, would not submit. Sound familiar? Sounds like Revelation. The book of Revelation is, goes a lot like that. goes a lot like that. So as we go on into you know, opening the hood of the particular section we're taking a look at and looking under it and drawing in these various passages that we saw in the book of Yeshua, the book of Yahu, and book of Acts, and also the letter of Hebrews there. You see that you know, these first three chapters are covering a huge span of time. <laughs> it's like when you go through, it it covers like 80 years of his life. You got the 80 years of 40 there in Egypt, 40 in Midian. And you know, people will debate on the various boundary lines of where Egypt's empire was at the time, but Midian was at the extremity of it. There is some debate as to whether they actually, Egypt had command of the, you know, if you think of um, the uh, Arabian Peninsula, the west coast of it, whether Egypt had control of that or not. But Midian being on the west coast of Saudi Arabia um, into the Gulf, what's now called the Gulf of Aqaba, and if modern day Eliot, right at the tip, down at the bottom of Israel, That gulf in there, whether um, Egypt had control over the east bank of the eastern shore or not, Midian was on the extremity of it. So, Moshe was fleeing outside of Egypt's control of it. Yeah, outside the jurisdiction. So, one of the things that we see, yes, uh, Deborah.
1: Since he was family, why on earth would Pharaoh want to kill him for killing one uh, Hebrew? So there's probably something deeper to that. Yes. Because that was, seems to be an extreme. So when I saw that, I thought, something is missing yeah, here. And
0: that's, that's a, a little bit of what is, you could say, going on underneath the, uh, the hood here of why you have a Pharaoh that knows Yosef and a Pharaoh that does not know Yosef. So be getting at that in just a little bit here. It's actually kind of going on into um, into chapter two a little bit. So one of the things that we see is that the promise that Israel would be multiplied like the stars of heaven, that was the promise that was given to Avram and then passed on to Yitzhak, passed on to Yaakov, passed on to the twelve sons. Think about that when you're down enslaved in Egypt. How is this promise going to work? That was, (laughs) as we read in Genesis, that was a big problem. Every, everybody along the way, Avraham wondered, well, how is this promise going to work? So then, you know, Ishmael (laughs) and then Yitzhak wondered, well, how's this promise going to work? And then Yaakov, well, how's this promise going to work? Yes, Larry. The thing about the, what, what uh, Jehovah was up to is he said, so that he will know that I am God. <laughs> yes. And, and, and Pharaoh fed, fell right into that. He said, I don't know who this guy Who is this guy? Yeah, yeah. This is a question he didn't want an answer to, really, yeah. if he had known it. Yeah. And he took him through each one of his gods and said, I'm not that guy. I, that's, not my, that's not God. This one's not God. This is not until he destroyed this whole, this whole nation. Yeah. He then, at the end, knew who God was. Yeah. Went through and uh, destroyed the pantheon and, and, and the country in the process. So one of the things that we see in this passage as well, in chapter 2, that you would see that the arrival and the birth and the, um, the childhood and the raising up of Moshe. That this deliverer was, was sent. That the people were crying out for a deliverer, and the deliverer came. So thus, when you see, we talked about as we were ending uh, Genesis, how many parallels there were between Yosef and the Messiah. Well, there, we're going to start seeing all kinds of parallels between Moses and the Messiah as well. And we'll see that as we go along even further, especially when we look at chapters three and four with this foreshadowing. You know, this foreshadowing when Moshe finally has this personal encounter with the Lord there at the burning bush that the Lord says, I'm going to be with you. Gives him these signs, but the key thing that he says, I'm going to be with you. And that is a thing that keeps showing up again and again and again through Israel's deliverance from Mitzrayim. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. In fact, one of the key things that we run into as a huge problem that with the whole 10 spies going into the land, our 12 spies, and 10 of them give a bad report and only two give a good report. One of the key issues is, is God going to be with us? Are we on our own to do this, to conquer these big walls, the big people, the giants? Are we on our own, or is the Lord going to be with us? And another key thing that you see rift on in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 is this reflection back to the time of manna, the time of water, provision in the desert as they are making their exodus and the people cry out in exodus 17 is the lord with us or not this thing keeps coming up again and again and again yes uh, deborah when they left egypt there was not one feeble so could you imagine
1: here you are you got a burnt nursing home sick people ill all of a sudden we all pop up and we're like running like uh what do you call them, gazelles <laughs> Well, because the greater exodus, we're going to have a greater exodus, because he said, I'm going to gather you, and then, you know, so not one, we didn't need, they didn't have clothes and shoes, so, and we can't even look behind, because Messiah, I mean, Christ said that, like, in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, those were two things that we need to look at, is that, you know, when he told Lot's wife not to look back, you know, so... That's going to be happening for us again. So these things are here. It says that they were here for our admonishing, that we are to, to be deeply studying, especially the Old Testament, where that is not old and outdated. Yeah. It's relevant. And, and to me, it's, um, it makes sense. It's like the, the New Testament, Like he's just repeating things. That's baby food. I mean, he's just repeating the, the, the prophecies in the Old
0: Testament. Yeah. More, more like you might say it's the graduate class. The graduate class, like, like when, you, when you go to graduate school, they assume what? That you know something. That's when you see like, you know, you've got an undergraduate degree or you've got a whole lot of learning behind you. And there's all kinds of prerequisites that go into when you go into graduate school. That is what the prophets are. That is what the apostolic writings are. They are the graduate school of... The kingdom of god because when you look at it you should already know the torah because that is remedial education is the torah to read the gospels to read the apostolic writings because why you know if you've ever talked with somebody who really doesn't know a subject and they start trying to expound upon advanced topics in a subject it's pretty evident immediately that uh, you really need to know some of the basics here before you start venturing off into advanced topics that are involved in this. And it's a similar way that happens with the apostolic writings. There are so many things that are in there that you are assuming that you know what the, uh, is written in the, in the Torah, the prophets and the writings before you go into this as a part of a checking process, because that's one of the things that Yeshua was, (laughs) you could say, um, he reprimanded not only the learned people of his time, but but the adversary as well. He reprimanded them both. It's like, it is written, it is written, it is written. You know, you're launching off onto some idea, but it's not grounded in what God has already said. Yes. Uh go ahead, John. Uh Peter said that Paul writes
1: things that can be hard to be uh, to be understood. You know, no one knew back then it wasn't you know a diagnosis thing, but I I think Paul had ADHD. <laughs> I mean the way he writes, he'd be talking to, to this group over here, then all of a sudden over here and you're not sure you gotta pay attention. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and you know, something else that, that um Paul had advised in some of his um his letters was that, you know that the law is, is lawful if you use it lawfully and it sounds like a circular statement but the law is there for a purpose and one of the things that paul gets across is that you're not to use it for something that it wasn't intended to do it is there as a guide it is the leading part the foundation for what the kingdom of god is like but it is not for determining you know your um, <laughs> whether you are in the kingdom or not, because there are people that know God's law very, very well, but if they are still guilty in front of heaven, and just like we learn every year at Yom Kippur time period. Sins, transgressions, iniquities. Iniquities are always hanging over your head because there is no way in Torah for you to ever get rid of that whatsoever. And you are toast with the iniquities. So unless heaven declares you not guilty of all those, as Paul says, you are still in your sins. And that's that's true because if with Yom Kippur, if you do not have what's talked about in the New Covenant where he takes these iniquities and he remembers them no more, gives you a new heart, gives you the spirit of God, you're stuck because basically <laughs> um you have uh what Paul talks about as in Romans where it talks about your thoughts convicting you and also absolving you because through the word, like in Leviticus 16, where Yom Kippur is discussed, the Day of Atonement, that you must have this absolution that comes through from this. But you also realize you are subject to condemnation from heaven without it. So you. Are condemned by it you are absolved by it because through this through yom kippur is talking about that the sins transgressions iniquities heaven covers over them and removes them out but then what happens if you don't have a tabernacle and later a temple for this to happen what if the priesthood is not in operation what happens that's one of the insights that we have not only in the prophets, but also like in the letter to Hebrews, and it's expressed through the Gospels, that there is the great high priest that is always in operation. And even in the Torah itself, as we get through into the latter part of Exodus, we will see that they were to build the tabernacle after the pattern that was shown on the mountain. Pattern of what? heaven the things in heaven talked about as the the true things the actual things it's not that as some translations will put it a mirror copy of the things of heaven but they are a shadow something that points forward to something else you know as some people explain it it's like in the computer age we have little icons on your screen and this one says print and you press that little button, you click it, and it does what? There's a whole lot of instructions that go on behind the scenes that you don't have no idea about that will take whatever you're doing and then send it to your printer. And hopefully, it sends it to your printer. But the idea is, is that that little thing, that representation, is a representation of a whole lot of stuff that's going to happen to get a your document out of your printer. So thus... The tabernacle is a representation of what heaven is doing. And what we're reading about is all about what heaven is doing. This effort that's going on from Genesis and going all the way down through Revelation and the day of the Lord that the prophets talk about. That this is a part of what heaven is doing along the way to deal with the problem of Mankind heading toward the tree of knowledge instead of the tree of life, and then, as we see, the goal is to get everybody back to the tree of life again. so when we uh, see there in um, continuing on in Exodus, one of the, the key points that was brought up before is um, about why is it that you have the situation with this um, <laughs> With the, um, I was brought up earlier the, the the question related to how is it that you had a pharaoh that did not know Joseph and didn't didn't seem to have any clue about the things that are going on. Now, one of the things there's various speculations as to what happened because Egyptian history is a mess of different kingdoms, different dynasties. A lot of them were even overlapping of during time periods. A lot of revisionist history happened between dynasties where some people didn't like what was the re- previous dynasties, so they were like actually chiseling off their faces and trying to erase them from history so uh, it's a messy, messy messy, messy time period. but one of the things that happened in there is that you had actual changes of administrations of different types of people that came in there so you had one dynasty that thought a certain way the next dynasty didn't which comes down to you probably have seen charlton heston in the 10 commandments but one of those weird things you you come in there's where's this whole thing about uh, you know bithia and uh bithia the daughter of Pharaoh who goes and picks Moshe up out of the river, Bithia. Where Bithia come from? Did Cecil B. DeMille just kind of dreamed that one that name up there. Well, it comes down is to through a kind of a convoluted thing of the um, genealogies that you see in First Chronicles chapter two and four, or two through four, but really two and four together. And the, the the interesting, strange part in there is that there is a mention in chapter four is it really messy genealogy because some things scholars put them in different places and this and that. But there seems to be this situation of in Caleb, the Kenizzite, you might remember that name, in his genealogy, somewhere related to his genealogy. There is some sort of a marriage to a daughter of Pharaoh somewhere in there. And interestingly enough, is that her name is called Bit Yah, or translated, transliterated as Bithia, but Bitya or Bat Yah. Probably have heard the name Batya before or daughter of Yah daughter of god so what is the daughter's name there you see in exodus daughter pharaoh bat paro so you have the interesting idea that came down through the tradition that bat paro became bat ya because she basically changed sides and so that's you have Bat Ya has become also a code word for a convert because someone who switches from one family, the family of Pharaoh, to the family of God in the in the process. Now that's kind of the also the interesting thing is that the the, the connection with Caleb and is also this bat Ya is married to a <laughs> is called Mered is how it's there now mered strictly speaking means a rebel well they the various sages connected it through is mered you have caleb connected to engaging with the mered or the meredim of israel the rebels the 10 spies who said no we can't go into the land Now, whether or not, because of how messy that the genealogy of 1 Chronicles chapter 4 is, it's hard to really say if that's the case, but somewhere in Jephunneh and Caleb's ancestry, now realize they are Kenizzites, Kenets. They were, as you read in the, the table that we went through in Genesis, they were the outsiders. It says, the land of Canaan was full of blah, 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 and Kenets, the people of Kenets, the Kenetsi, the Kenizzites. They were a part of the people that were the problem that the Lord saw in Canaan. They would have to be removed. But you had certain of the Kenetsi, Yefunah, who grafted themselves into. The family of God. They changed sides. So, whether or not this Bat Paro became Bat Yah was related to Moshe or not, you saw that there was early on in time the people of Canaan, the people of Egypt saw we don't want to go the way of Canaan anymore. We don't want to go the way of Egypt anymore. We want to go the way that the God of Abraham. Yitzhak and Yaakov are going. They change sides. Even to great duress that was happening in the process. Because, you know, you saw that this Pharaoh wanted to kill Moshe. And you're thinking, you're having a daughter of a daughter of Pharaoh and her son wanting to take him out. So You see the overlapping kind of administrations that happened and people, as the intrigues go in royal families, always trying to do in the other people to uh, maintain power. But in the process, you try to do in all kinds of people. Is that going to really, if you're fighting against God and the kingdom of heaven, is that really going to do anything? Herod tried to. Completely coincidentally, when you're looking at this issue of um, the Pharaoh trying to take out the ever growing Israel population in Egypt, he does what? He tries to take out the baby boys. Herod is trying to take out what? Baby boys, because they were going to be a direct threat. To his particular leadership because there was going to be a leader coming through that uh they said well prophecy says hey you're going to have this great king of israel was coming in and as we talked about before the hasmoneans had, had a pretty tenuous grip on being any sort of legitimate kings of israel to begin with so the fact that you would have a mashiach son of David, through the line of Yehuda, who the scepter was to actually pass through. Wow, that's a big threat to Herod or any people that would supposedly be in power. So these are some of the uh, things that we have here as an overview. Uh, It's kind of where we'll leave things off here today, because next time we're going to uh, get in the next section with Vayera we're going to start getting into the direct confrontation between heaven and earth so what you see here in this particular lead up to this the hand is being stretched out heaven through Moshe through Aharon are extending a lifeline to this pharaoh this pharaoh is solidified, as we'll see in the next few Torah sections, solidified in his position with the purpose of displaying truly who was in charge. Was it the pantheon of Egypt or was it the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Yosef, Moshe, and Aharon? Was it that one?